Welcome to the Post-COVID Church Podcast with your host, Stuart Kellogg. Welcome. Today, we're talking about one of the most basic American rights, one that is under increasing attack. It's a battle all followers of Christ must understand, the freedom of religion. Now, the fact is, Christianity has never had special legal protection in America, ever. But we've had cultural advantages from our founding until now. Perhaps that's why religious liberty is so important. David Calloway is the religious freedom specialist for the Freedom Forum where he guides the organization's First Amendment work on religious liberty. For the past five years, he's overseen the Georgia Rights Responsibility Respect Project, working to promote religious freedom and religious literacy in public schools. Welcome to the Post-COVID Church Podcast, David. Thank you so much, Stuart. I'm glad to be here. The Freedom Forum's focus is fostering First Amendment freedoms for all. How does the Freedom Forum do that? Absolutely. We do that through a number of uh, initiatives, uh, educational programs like my own, where we work with uh, teachers or school districts on how to teach about religion academically and constitutionally. We also have a program called Museum Ed, which does media literacy and fake news work with uh, social studies teachers from across the country. We are continuing to do a lot of the same types of work we've done through um, outreach programs that work like this in order to help Americans understand why the First Amendment is important and, uh, and the key things they need to know about it. Our First Amendment, which is an amazingly unique part of this nation's foundation, but it doesn't specify special protection for Christians. That's correct. Yeah. So it is uh, religious freedom broadly. And this was not exactly a totally new idea um, in the founding of nations, but it was certainly unique to America to codify it into law from our beginning. It's what is special about America. And, and it's what one of the reasons that I think um, we can point to why America has significantly more religious people, uh, people who identify as religious than other um, similarly developed Western nations. From the beginning, we said, hey, we're going to codify this into law. And that was because in America, we wanted to found a nation unlike any other nation that had been founded before, where we were not all founding a nation that, that we all shared the same experience. We didn't all come from the same background or believe all the same things. And so it was really important that we enshrine the, the same values, that, that we, we were going to do differently, is that we were, gonna, we were all going to agree on the same values. And, and for us, we, we see that in the First Amendment. And so to be an American, what that means is that you are granted your the right to believe and to practice to as a great of extent as we can allow your deepest beliefs. But I am granted that right as well. And we may disagree. Um, and so that then sets up this kind of challenge for us as, as citizens of a diverse democracy on how do we navigate the, the equal right that we've both been given across that difference. Would you agree that Christianity has never been under such assault in America? In America, you know, there's, I think that could be read as true. I, I am kind of of the opinion that most of the New Testament authors, most of, of Jesus' disciples would probably be pretty surprised at the success of Christianity. But I think it's absolutely true. You know, like, like for example, for the first time in this country's history, 
white Christians are no longer in a majority. White Christians have have lost the majority in the last uh, uh, ten years, um, and uh, you know something that's been particularly for evangelicals for a long time for for decades and decades we've seen the decline in mainstream Protestant Christianity. But for a long time, evangelicals were immune to that declining trend. And and in the the last 10 years or so, that switched. Something's happened where now evangelicals are are seeing their numbers decline as well. But I think it's important to recognize, okay, so what does it mean now that my viewpoint might be in the minority? But that's it's different where you're from. So I'm I'm here in Georgia. The vast majority of of Georgians are religious, um, are Christian, are Methodist and Baptist in particular. In most, say, state places of employment or in schools here in Georgia, Christianity isn't threatened. I think, you know, when you think about some of the kind of more national trends or, you know, some of those other aspects, that's where we see some of the decline. Well, now, you mentioned Georgia in the Bible Belt, but looking at Two companies based there, Coca-Cola and Delta. If an evangelical employee stands up and says, I believe in the biblical definition of marriage, that between a man and a woman, they would have a price to pay. Do you disagree? So I, I can't say because I, you know, I just don't know. One, it probably depends on the context. I think there are, are certainly lots of contexts where that would probably be okay, and there'd be at least people who agree. But I do agree that there are certain contexts in those companies where, where that wouldn't be okay. For that individual who wants to express that belief, that person shouldn't be punished alongside someone expressing the opposite belief should not be punished. Now, private companies are not beholden to the First Amendment. So that's really important. And they can do whatever they like. And some of them say, you know, we want to follow it. But then when it gets to the nitty gritty, they, they definitely side in their favor. You know, there are places in this country like Utah is a great example where in, in 2015, Utah passed a bill, uh, often called the Utah Compromise, although I hear a lot of people don't like it, like hearing it called the Utah Compromise because neither side often feels like they compromise. They feel like they got what they wanted, where it was LGBTQ activists and the predominantly conservative Utah legislature coming together and finding a way to create a bill that expanded protections for both religious people and LGBTQ people. So for example, in that bill, there's protections for a, a person who expresses a belief like that, um, that they can't be punished, say, by the government. But there are also protections in the bill that help LGBTQ people from being discriminated against in housing and employment. And so both you know, groups were able to find like allies and, and, and produce something that, that created uh, uh, expanded freedoms for everyone and didn't end up limiting their, themselves. So I think those opportunities are, 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 are out there, and those are the kinds of things we want to look to as, as good examples. My guest, David Calloway, the Religious Freedom Specialist for the Freedom Forum. Secularists say it's fine to go to church, have your religion, just don't bring it into the public square. But of course, Christ called followers to impact culture. That's the rub, right? Mm-hmm. And I should say, while I, I absolutely agree with that, that reading, regardless of that, the American American history allows for, importantly, the bringing of your faith into the public square, like American law, American history, precedent, all of it. And, and, and that's good for a lot of reasons. One, because 
how are you as an individual, you know, in the West, we often think about religion as this balkanized thing that, that, you know, oh, some people do on Wednesdays and Sundays, but that's it. But one, even for the people who only think about religion on Wednesdays and Sundays, that's, they're still influenced. That's not a lot of people. All of us are, you're, you're, are influenced on, on our daily lives, both in sacred and mundane ways by our, our religious beliefs. And so to enter into the public square and leave those behind is, is practically impossible. I mean, it, I, I don't know how most people would do it. So I think it, people who encourage that are misguided. You know, I think we should be able to bring our full selves to the public square, including our religious beliefs. And that's what the, the Constitution enshrines. Um, and, and the free exercise clause, you know, that that as much as you know we can, we're gonna let people exercise their their religious beliefs, not just in their homes, you know, in the in the public sphere. But those taking on that religious belief aggressively. They have more sway now, don't they? You know, so the unaffiliated have certainly increased. Yeah, I mean, like, this is the huge change where a lot of called the unaffiliated or religious nuns, N-O-N-E-S. It's important to know that only a small percentage of those people identify as either atheist or agnostic. Uh, the vast majority uh, now, something in the about the 25%, 26% of Americans identify as unaffiliated. Less than 10% of Americans identify as atheist or agnostic. So most of those are people who, you know, may grew up in a religious tradition and just no longer participate in it and, and don't feel comfortable as identifying in the, in the first place. So more people growing up without religion being as central of a, of a part of their lives as it has for, for most people in the past. Americans have increasingly felt that uh, religion has played a smaller and smaller role in their lives over the last two decades. You can just watch that go up until COVID. And then that's when we have this total reversal where, in fact, a very dramatic reversal where many, many Americans are turning to religion or returning to religion or in, in reinvesting in, in their religious traditions at this time. And that's just fascinating to me. Such a dramatic reversal of a trend on this issue. And I'm very curious to see how that plays out of MX. And that's what this project's all about. And one of the great opportunities for the post-COVID church is reaching those people who have realized there's something bigger than me. Exactly. Exactly. And people want community, right? I think they want community at this moment. And nothing builds community better than religion. I think you'll agree the biggest flashpoint now in our culture is sexuality. Those who believe the Bible's definition of marriage is that between a man and a woman are facing increased hostility, if not persecution. Is that simply the price Christ promised followers would pay? You know, I do think there is a, a certain level where any religious tradition is not always going to be with the mainstream. And for Christianity in particular, that's, that's I think, difficult from an institutional knowledge standpoint, because for so long, Christianity has been a part of... Uh, the, the the ways in which not just this country works, but lots of the Western world work. And so this new shift, it can often be quite, quite jarring. There's a really good quote that, that says, you know, when you're used to privilege, equality feels a lot like oppression. And I'm not saying that's exactly where we're at right now, but there is this, there is this kind of shift for, for many Christians where they no longer feel like they're, they're in the majority and they feel like their views are being persecuted. And, and for, for, 
For that, I would say that's an opportunity to empathize with the other and understand, okay, so there for, for this, this experience is what I'm feeling right now. Many others who are different than me have felt that experience for a long time. How can we ensure that neither one of us has to be in that spot, right? And I think that's the, the value of religious freedom is that when used correctly, it's, it's, a, it's a tide that raises all ships. When used as a shield to defend religious freedom, protecting your right to believe your deepest beliefs protects everyone's rights to do so. So, you know, an example I often give is, is here in Georgia, a town council was considering to permit the, the building of a mosque and an armed militia of individuals showed up outside and council postponed and then quietly denied the permit later. And that's how it was reported is, is mosque denied permit to be built. But from the government standpoint, it should say place of worship because it doesn't matter. The government doesn't care if it's a mosque or a temple or a church. It just cares it's a place of worship. And so for some people, they might see that as a victory. Hey, great. You know, the, these people who I disagree with, they don't get, you know, a foothold in my area. But that's a short term view because what the real victory is, is for the ability of the government to deny anyone a place of worship. Right. And we don't want that. So I think thinking in that long-term view of saying, hey, now we're in the place where our views are not part of the majority, or some of our views are not part of the majority. How can I protect those rights or those views and the, the ability to, to express those and believe those freely, while also ensuring that I don't tear down you know, my protections in the future. If, if the trend continues into the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years, then Christians will find themselves in a significantly less impactful place than they are even now. And that's probably scary for a lot of people. And so you don't want to be in the position of tearing down religious freedom rights for others and then find, oh, now that those others are in, in, the, in positions of power, they, they're not interested in protecting my rights, right? So I think that's really critical to keep in mind. My guest, David Calloway, the Religious Freedom Specialist for the Freedom Forum. We've seen some very public cases. For example, the Colorado cake baker who refused to design a cake for a gay couple. And I think it's important to note, he sold cakes from his shop to anybody, but he refused to use his artistic talents to design a cake for a gay couple's wedding. Your feeling is, hey, there can be accommodation. But in many cases, those who are taking on businesses or individuals with fundamental biblical beliefs don't want to accommodate. They just want to crush. Yeah, that's it's really tough. And I think that's um, the key, the key question moving forward. So one, I want to say that cases like the cake baker are really, really rare in the grand scheme of religious freedom disagreements. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of more um, instances where, say, this, this clash happens and then the two parties find a way to figure it out. And I think that's kind of what, that's again the ideal, is, is to recognize that, that every day in America, maybe not every day, but but lots every week, this is happening in some capacity, maybe not exactly in a cake, maybe it's a photographer or or what have you. And they're, they're, people are navigating those without getting into the courts. And, and often the courts are involved, prosecutors will go out and, and find ideal candidates and or set up scenarios to litigate that, you know, situations. And, and so I think that's important to kind of separate the 
constructed nature of some of these cases and the real experience. And so that real experience of accommodation, you know, there are certainly people out here who on both sides who are unwilling to accommodate. So let's let's talk about Utah, for example. One of the, the provisions of, of that bill is that as a county clerk, if you are issuing marriage licenses, there has to be someone on staff who's willing to issue those licenses to a same-sex couple. It doesn't have to be you. Many county clerks in, in Utah are of the LDS faith and might find that to go against their religious beliefs. And so you as a couple, you know, say you're a same-sex couple and you go up to the window, you know, to have your marriage license signed, that uh, that county official brings it to the back, it gets notarized in the back and brought back up to you, the couple, and it's all taken care of. And, and for the couple, they get their certificate and for the, the clerk, it's notarized by someone else in the back so they don't feel like they individually have to have their rights violated. That's an accommodation. No one perfectly wins that, right? Because for some people, they're going to say, no, the LGBTQ couple should see it notarized in public, in front of everyone. Everyone should have to do it. No exceptions whatsoever. And some people are going to say, no, the county should not issue any same-sex marriage certificates whatsoever, right? And those two groups can continue to fight, and that's fine. But I just don't think that's that doesn't that's adding to the divisiveness that's in our, our society right now. And, and again, these two groups are, are Utah is an example of saying, how can we find a way for everyone to get what they want or almost all of what they want and be able to still keep their dignity? Like that's, I think, really important because for the religious individual, that relationship with their God is so important. And what I ask of that person is to say, take that feeling of significance and apply it to how the LGBTQ person feels about the issue and just pretend for a moment that that's how strongly they feel about that. And for the LGBTQ person, you know, for that sense of integrity and that deeply sense, uh, sense important sense of self, worth and public sphere, take that feeling and apply it to the religious person and say, okay, we both like, we want to, to, to keep our dignity in this, both of us. How can we do that? Those are the kinds of solutions and, and, and ways of thinking about this that I think uh, are, are most valuable. I guess the biggest problem is, is that you have many who say those who hold the biblical view on, for example, marriage, they're bigots. It, they should be forced to sign those certificates because that's the law. To me, what it means to be an American is a shared commitment to the First Amendment and, and, and understanding that, again, you as an individual have your right to both believe your deepest beliefs and then all the other freedoms of the First Amendment flow from that, right? Like, what do you need speech or press for if you're not guaranteed your deepest beliefs in the first place? Are all kind of paired together with this, this responsibility to protect that right for other people, because that's how you protect it for yourself. So when you, as a liberal, try and totally eliminate or disenfranchise speech that you're talking about, where someone's expressing a view about, about the biblical uh, definition of marriage, against the First Amendment, that's un-American, but the opposite is equally true, right? That's the other side of it. it it's, it's both, it's, it's you know, it, it can't go the other way either. And, and we are, I'm not a free speech absolutist. I think it's kind of crazy, but I do think we are benefited by the understanding that you get to say what you, that we are better off by allowing each other to speak our deepest beliefs than we are to, to prohibit that. Finally, David, you've certainly been in the middle of it. You've seen how quickly culture has shifted just in the last decade. And the Christian faith is increasingly marginalized or attacked. 
What do you see a decade from now? It's that's really tough. You know, if COVID hadn't happened, I would say I think the trend would continue. And it may still see where we see the general society moving towards a, a more secular viewpoint than it has in the past. I should say, as a, just as a side note, this is actually the opposite trend we see at the Supreme Court. And so for the last three kind of chief justices, you go back to, to, to Berger, um, goes into the 1980s, and, and to Rehnquist and to Roberts, we see an increase in the number of victories that religious plaintiffs are able to, to secure. So it's like about 50% uh, in the 80s. And then in the Rehnquist court, it jumps to about 60%. Um, in the Roberts court, uh, religious plaintiffs who brought court uh, cases to the Supreme Court have won something like 86% of the time. So it's a huge number. But that's, and that's, the, that's the opposite trend of what we see in, in culture is the secularizing of, of culture. With COVID, COVID's the really interesting thing you know, here again, because I think what it did is... I think there are many challenges to religion right now. One of them, I think, is the rise of social media and how it gives us this fake sense of community, this kind of like pseudo community that, that gets a lot of people enough of the way there, but it's not actually real. It doesn't do things like a religious community does, like a church or a temple or, or what have you. And I think COVID might have helped people see some of that. They really desired true community of, of individuals who weren't just they're on the internet, but they're in their lives to support them. And a reckoning, of course, you know, with, with for many, a lot of, uh, a lot of deaths, you know, and, and how, to, how to kind of relook at the world through those lens. I'm very curious, as we get back to normal, I think there will be lots of things that have changed and lots of things that will eventually find their way back to average. And it's really hard to know at this point, but I, I think that there is an opportunity for not just Christians, but for, for all religious people right now, um, this is the moment where for the more than any time in the last decade, two decades, there has been interest from, from the American public in wanting to participate in, in religion. And so for a lot of people, you shouldn't let that opportunity go if that interests you. Opportunity is what we talk a lot about here on the Post-COVID Church Project. Opportunity for the church to have more influence, and to fulfill its mission. My guest today, David Calloway, Religious Freedom Specialist from the Freedom Forum. How can folks find out more about your organization? Uh, you can go to freedomforum.org, where we have a, a ton of resources constantly being updated about all five freedoms of the First Amendment. Also, you can follow it at us on Twitter at first for all one st first for all and, and that's where you'll see our, our latest events and, and news. Thank you so much, David for sharing with us today on the Post-COVID Church Podcast. Thank you so much. I had a great time. And hey, I'd like you to share as well. Send me questions, comments, anything having to do with the Post-COVID Church Podcast. Just email at simple, Stuart, S-T-U-A-R-T, Stuart at thepostcovidchurch.org. The website is thepostcovidchurch.com. On it, links to the podcast, also all the archive material from, well, more than a year of material that I think you'll find interesting. Also, for the most recent podcasts, such as this one, transcripts makes it easy to find the information. Thank you so much for listening. Please tell your friends. I'm Stuart Kellogg. 
Thank you for listening to the Post-COVID Church Podcast. You can find much more at the Post-COVID Church group on Facebook or on the website, thepostcovidchurch.com.